the prophet Samuel initiates a five-year countdown to the birth of Christ as he offers the Nephites a clear choice of paths, one leading to peace and the other to assured destruction. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome again to Gospel Doctrine, your Come Follow Me podcast. Today's lesson is Helaman chapters 13 through 16, Glad Tidings of Great Joy. And we have a few questions for you today. The first is from Charlotte from Sandy. And she asks if I've ever heard of Wayne May. I mentioned that the Book of Mormon doesn't have, I mentioned a, a couple of lessons ago, where I asked the question, what would what would you do if the if there were an immediate proof archaeologically of the Book of Mormon. And uh, she, so she brings up a man named Wayne May. She says, you may find his work fascinating. He is an archaeologist and studies the Book of Mormon evidences. As you have said, this is nothing on which to base your testimony, but I find it wonderful and thrilling. There is so much evidence that does support the Book of Mormon, and I think it is also worth noting. So I sort of implied that there was no firm archaeological evidence in support of the Book of Mormon. And what I meant was that there's no real proof. So I'm one, I'm very glad that you pointed out that there is a fair amount of evidence. Uh, and evidence are, are things which would tend to prove it, although they may not completely prove it. So uh, thank you for making that distinction, and I think you're exactly right. Charlotte uh, continues, I have also had a question that I'm interested to know your thoughts on. We attribute every gift as being from God. That is indisputable. But there are so many very talented people who have unrighteous talents, if I can deem them so. For example, entertainers like comedians, singers, producers, etc. They have undeniable talent, yet wicked in nature. So my question is, do you think the devil also has gifts, or would you not call it that? It seems that he too can inspire people. But I hate to call it inspiration coming from an evil source. Wonderful question, Charlotte. And uh, the, the, the answer is, I think... All good gifts come from God. So the talent that an actor would use, for example, or a singer, that talent cannot be created by Satan. Uh, what Satan would try to do is take gifts from God and pervert them. All Satan has ever been able to offer the the children of men and women on the earth is a counterfeit of the gifts of God. So, for example, in exchange for the gift of, for us giving up our gift of God-given gift of responsibility, he'll give us the counterfeit of shame. And if we feel enough shame, it's almost like we're taking responsibility for the bad things we've done. But actually, there's no repentance in shame. And every wonderful thing from God has a counterfeit. Almost every wonderful thing from God has a counterfeit from Satan. And it is not talents that are unrighteous but it is the desires with which we use those talents. If my talents are being used in a way that uh, where my motivation is to glorify God, then that is not an unrighteous talent. But I can take that exact same talent and I can seek for the glory of the world. And that would have an unrighteous effect. So thank you for that question. Next, Jacqueline asks, in this week's lesson, speaking of last week, I was quite confused when I read Helaman 12.24. And may God grant in his great fullness that men might be brought unto repentance and good works, that they might be restored unto grace for grace, according to their works. The word for makes it confusing for me because it makes it sound like a person is earning their reward in heaven by their works. Grace for grace seems to say that the more good I do, the better my reward. I know that isn't right. I do have a problem with earning rewards for heaven, even though I think the LDS view of heaven does appear to be rewarding people for their good works. I feel that the entombment should be the center of the gospel and that good works follow true repentance because it leads to a broken heart and desire for brotherly love and kindness toward all men. Well, Jacqueline, wonderful question. I have a couple of thoughts on this. The first one is that when we talk about us receiving uh, line upon line, the the way that this phrase first hit me was grace for grace, meaning we take we trade in 
sort of our beginner's version of grace, and then we get an upgraded version of grace, and then we trade that in, and we get ever closer to God in the amount of grace that we can sustain or that we can receive, that we're prepared to handle. So it's kind of like receiving things line upon line. We receive grace, we receive grace for grace. I don't know if that's accurate. That was my first impression. My second impression was this, that we do indeed give God, or we, we render grace, not necessarily unto God, but God does reward us with grace for our grace. Now, what does grace mean? Grace means an undeserved gift. You may recall early in the book of John, uh, John chapter 1, Jesus is described, the, the Son of God, uh, the Word is described as being full of grace and truth. And this is actually a quote from the Old Testament. I'll leave it to you to look up what verse it's from, but it's, it's in the book of Deuteronomy. And it's also in the book of Exodus. So Jehovah is described as having what is the word that is used in the Old Testament is translated as loving kindness and righteousness or faithfulness. So God is known as having these two wonderful attributes. Loving kindness, this, the word in Hebrew is chesed, and it is the only, it is best described, the only earthly analog that we can find is a motherly love. Now, a mother loves her children not because they deserve love, uh, but all of us would look at a little baby and think that baby is easy to love. The baby can do nothing. Not only has it done nothing, but it can do nothing to earn our love, but we just consider a little baby worthy of love. We give that baby love without the baby having to do anything to deserve it. And so that the way a mother feels toward her child is the closest we can come to understanding the way that God feels toward us. This undeserved gift of love that he gives us, his loving kindness, is, is translated in the New Testament as grace. And if we can somehow understand how to love each other the way that God loves us, then we will be giving each other an undeserved gift. And so if we are able to give each other grace, then God can return to us grace for grace. In chapter 41 of Alma, Alma tried to teach his son Corianton this lesson. It, whatever you send out, this will come back to you. you. If you do good, you will have good returned unto you again. And then he made the point, if you act in mercy, you will have mercy returned unto you again. And so mercy and grace are very closely related. Mercy means something that is forgiveness that is undeserved. And it seems odd that God would want us to forgive each other when we don't deserve it, but we always, or let me put it another way, forgiveness always is given when it's undeserved. Uh, nobody can ever make up for the, the wrong that they've done you. I guess it's, it's possible under certain circumstances, if they steal from you, they return the thing that they stole. Uh, it still doesn't 100% make up for it, though, because we, we have bad feelings about having had it taken away. We feel perhaps we have our peace disrupted, we have our trust damaged. And so forgiveness, in my opinion, is always undeserved. And it is always grace when we give forgiveness to each other. And nevertheless, we're commanded to do so. So we're commanded to have grace, undeserved love towards each other. And when we do that, God can return grace unto us. That's my thoughts on the matter, Jacqueline. I hope that helps. Our final question this week comes from Stephen. Stephen asks, you asked a few lessons back what we thought was the reason that the Nephite population could so quickly move between righteousness and wickedness. I have been pondering that question for years without answer, but since your invitation, I have thought and asked and have an idea I would like to offer. Even though Mosiah created a structure of judges, it was not extremely different than their monarchical pattern had been. The son of the incumbent was voted into the office, usually. Thus, power in the government favored lineage, which limited who could become the power broker for the society. Yet, there was an element of choosing the next chief judge as well as the lesser judges, because it does not seem to be a politically open society where anyone could be voted in. I postulate that this fact opened the mental story that the office should be attainable by others. There was status in office, leading to focus on acquiring more power, and these in the ruling class, including the lower judges, had a self-interest focus, structuring the laws in their favor and leading the people 
to also become wrapped up in clannish behavior. This is my thought. How does it compare to what you have come up with? Thank you, Stephen. That's a wonderful thought. And my my thought is related. So if you want to understand what, what I think about why the Nephite society could co- so quickly flip-flop between righteousness and wickedness, we're going to go back to Mosiah uh, chapter 23, verse 13. The quote from that chapter is, Stand fast in that liberty wherewith ye have been made free. You will find this verse quoted over and over again throughout the book of Alma, the books of Alma and Helaman, and onward. He, when uh, sometimes a prophet might be describing another brother in the faith, and he'll say, "He stands fast, fast in that liberty wherewith we have all been made free." Uh, I that that would be an, a wonderful exercise if you want to go back and look this up. You can even just look up liberty or look up stand fast and you'll see a number of quotes, but they're all quoting back to this first time this is this concept is introduced, stand fast in this liberty. Now the liberty is the gospel. When we think about liberty, it very closely aligns with God's plan for us to have agency. The Savior represented that plan, and Satan, on the other hand, advocated a system of force, taking away agency, and therefore evil and compulsion have always been very closely tied together. So my answer sort of echoes yours, that because they, the Nephites had a, they were newly introduced to the idea that they could choose their own government, uh, we have to remember that the, the concept of governing yourselves for a people is very dangerous and it requires a great amount of responsibility. It create it, it requires a great amount of maturity. We can look around us today, uh, for those of you, and we have listeners all over the world, so the, there are those listeners who do not live in a country where the government is chosen from among the people. Uh, and I won't, I won't mention which countries, I don't know who's listening in your government, but uh, I don't want anyone to get in trouble for listening. But there are, con- there are listeners where you don't live in that sort of country. But for those who do, you can look around and see that there are people in your society who do not have the maturity to take this kind of responsibility to govern yourselves seriously. It is a very serious responsibility. Instead, what they seem to want to do is make society more and more unequal. And by unequal, I don't mean inequality in terms of wealth. I mean inequality in terms of legal privilege. So the kind of privilege that says laws apply to me that don't apply to you or vice versa. I get to express my beliefs and you don't. I get to escape punishment for infractions for which you would be punished. That's what all of these lesser judges wanted to do. They wanted to have a certain amount of compulsion in the government as long as they were on the end that was pointing the stick at the other end. Uh, As long as they didn't have the sharp end pointed at them, they were perfectly okay with introducing compulsion into the government. Whereas those who were on the side of Christ wanted to stand fast in that liberty wherewith they had been made free. Now, the first reference to this scripture is talking about the gospel, but really it, it, is, it goes deeper than that. It goes all the way to the root motivation for the plan of salvation, which was to make us all free. God wants us to be free. He wants us to have the maximum amount of freedom and choices and therefore uh, accountability and responsibility that is possible for us to maintain. And obviously, there's a certain amount of maturity that is required for us to attain each new level of freedom. So that that's my idea, is that as they embraced the plan of Satan, the Nephites were susceptible to temptations that were not only moral, they weren't just sexual temptations or financial temptations, they were also political temptations. And so therefore they had this vulnerability in their society that they just didn't have the maturity to, to shore up. Now, the Lamanites overcame this same problem. The Lamanites had even less societal maturity than the Nephites did. Their society was based even more on inequality. They believed that they were better than the Nephites, that they had a natural right to govern the Nephites to the point where the Nephites could not even resist if the Lamanites wanted to kill them. That's what Laman believed, that Nephi didn't have a right to flee away even though they wanted to kill him. And so the Lamanites considered themselves 
to be better, to have greater privileges than the Nephites. And they overcame this. Uh, this, this very lesson is where they do it. They, they, their society is so much more righteous than that of the Nephites that Samuel has to be a prophet called from among the Lamanites to preach to the Nephites about Jesus. And the Lamanites were able to overcome this inherent weakness and immaturity in their society to the point where they were entirely righteous. So that's my answer, is that when Satan can tempt us not only morally but politically to make our society an unequal one in terms of who is respected before the law, then even though we may have personal rectitude in our lives, we're trotting a path that leads to uh, moral evil, even though we may have repented of our sins, our very society is built on compulsion, and therefore it will draw us back into evil. This is what kept happen happening to the Nephites. So they were repenting, but their society itself, their political system, was built around compulsion, and so it kept drawing them back into evil. That's my opinion. Thank you for that question, Stephen. If you have a question... Uh, and you'd like me to respond from the scriptures, send me an email at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. Or uh, as Stephen did this week, you can go onto our website at gospeltoctrine.com. And there's a contact form there. You can you can send me a, an email from that form. I'll get, it, I'll get it in my email either way. Speaking of our website, every episode has its own page on the website. I am just a few weeks behind right now. Uh, I have to say I've, I've started recently a master's program, and uh, as if I didn't have enough going on, I'm running a couple of businesses. I have a wife who is about to give birth in a month or so, and I'm, uh, I'm also spending a fair amount of time doing a weekly podcast, and uh, now I've added a, a master's degree to that. I swore I would never go back to school when I graduated from college, but here I am. So when something falls off the list, it's usually uh, the Gospel Doctrine website. But I, I always, every few weeks, I do catch up. And there on the website, you can find my notes. And uh, with a little bit of a delay, you can find a transcript of our episodes in the Book of Mormon. And if you go to the, the upper navigation, you can find a link to donate to our podcast. I'd like to thank all of those who make generous donations to the podcast. It does help quite a bit in our efforts. And another way to help the podcast without donating is to spread the word, uh, tell a friend about Gospel Doctrine, or leave us a five-star review in your favorite podcasting app. Now, with that said, let's get started on Helaman chapter 13. Now, very quickly, the synopsis of the story of Samuel the Lamanite is this, that Samuel tries to, he is a Lamanite, uh, historically the wicked of the two people of the Book of Mormon. The Lamanites and the Nephites are generally aligned. The common alignment of the Lamanites is evil. The common alignment of the Nephites is good. And at this particular point in time, the reverse is true. So Samuel is this prophet called from among the Lamanites to preach to the Nephites. They reject him. He returns, but because they've locked him out of their city, he climbs up onto the wall and he preaches a powerful sermon. They try to kill him during the sermon. They try to shoot arrows and stones at him, cannot hit him. He finishes his sermon and then escapes their clutches by jumping down on the far side of the wall and is never seen again. So that's the story of Samuel. Let's talk about the content of what he, ta what he teaches. First of all, I believe that this story is intentionally a parallel of Alma in the city of Ammonihah. So if, if you recall... Alma was asked by the Lord to teach in Ammonihah, which was a wicked city, and he is cast out. And this is the same thing that happens to Samuel the Lamanite, teaching in Zarahemla among the Nephites. They cast him out, and then the Lord says to him, I would like you to return and continue teaching the people in Zarahemla. And at this point, they resist him returning. And so the, the gates of the city are locked to him. He, the only way he can teach to them is to stand up on these walls. Now, these walls were built, they were constructed, presumably, by the Captain Moroni, who built up fortifications around all the cities of the Nephites. So it's interesting that the, for, the physical fortifications became the pulpit or the jumping-off point uh, for which Samuel could offer his spiritual fortification. And I'm not saying that uh, in, in Zarahemla they locked him into prison or they burnt all of those who believed on his word. The, the parallel between Samuel and Alma and Ammonihah 
uh, is not does not continue all the way to the end of the story. But I believe that this is told purposely so that we'll realize that there were powerful prophets among the Lamanites. And as it says, not only do we not know who all of those prophets were, we don't even know all of the words that Samuel the Lamanite said. At one point it says, we can't, I, all of the words of Samuel could not be written. Now, I don't know that that is because, for the same reason that, for example, as we'll read in a few chapters, when Jesus prayed, when Jesus appears to the Nephites and he prays for them, it says tongue could not express and uh, neither could be written the words which he prayed. We heard him pray unto the Father. Uh, that is, a, I believe, a different reason than the reason that all of the words of Samuel could not be written. I think that simply they just couldn't write fast enough to keep up with somebody. So they were dependent on human memory. Somebody was witnessing this and then later had to go and from memory transcribe what was going on. I don't believe they could have kept up with him as he was speaking. And therefore, all of the words of Samuel could not be written. Now, I could be wrong about that. That is my guess uh, as to why they would say that. So therefore, we're lucky to have what we do. And in any case, Samuel probably said many other notable things. Among the most notable things that he says is that, well, he begins by saying destruction hangs over this people. Uh, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. The most notable thing, in my opinion, that he says is he gives an exact time frame. He says five years is going to go by and then Jesus Christ will be born onto the earth. And that sort of specific time frame is quite fascinating. You very, very, very rarely find that in the scriptures, that a prophet gives uh, a prediction that is so, first of all, so concrete that there could be no mistaking. The fulfillment of a prophecy is either some destruction will happen, that can't be mistaken, but generally is also that a spiritual state will exist among the people. And usually the, the fact that the people will be asleep is the state that a prophet will predict. And then, uh, there's nobody to really pay attention to the prophecy when it comes true. So in this particular case, this prophecy is quite unique. Uh, Samuel is giving them something that cannot be mistaken, and it also has a very specific date attached to it. Before that, he gives another prophecy, which has a date attached to it. He says, 400 years will not pass away before this people will be destroyed, except they repent. Um Along with that, he gives a prophecy about the Lamanites. He says, the Lamanites are actually more righteous than you all, and they will be preserved because when they convert to the Lord, then they remain faithful forever. These two prophecies are quite interesting, and I'll tell you why. For me, I read them and I thought, this is, this is fascinating that Samuel would threaten the Nephites with destruction 400 years into the future. Number one, there's no urgency behind a prophecy like that. I don't know why the Nephites listening to him would think, wow, we better hurry then and repent because we only have 400 years to do it in. Uh, that is not the kind of time frame that excites a whole lot of urgency in the audience. But second of all, uh, if you've ever read the Book of Mormon before, you'd know the ending. You know what happens when Jesus Christ appears. Uh, first of all, a lot of the wicked are destroyed. The people who are still left when Jesus Christ appears to the Nephites they are people who are entirely willing to repent, and they are righteous for well over 200 years after they meet him. After he appears among them, establishes his church, the Nephites are righteous for centuries. So uh, the kind of prophecy to the Nephites that foretells their destruction with this intervening period, a long extended period of righteousness in between, I thought, how could this possibly be a helpful prophecy? First of all, let's say the Nephites don't repent. Why would it be that such a curse would remain hanging over their heads even when their posterity had repented? Wouldn't, wouldn't you think that this long period of righteousness among the Nephites would tend to interrupt any curse that had come before it? And there would be no curse that could survive it because they've repented of all their sins. Nobody's sitting around thinking, okay, as soon as several years go by, then I'm going to be wicked again, and it's based on this former wickedness. No, everyone was dead that heard Samuel talk. So how could his curse survive the righteousness of the Nephites? That's my first question. The second question is related. How could the blessing that he pronounces on the heads of the Lamanites survive that period of righteousness? And why would it survive 
their utter apostasy. So the, I, I thought a lot about this, and the answers for me are also related. First of all, let's take the second question. So how could the Lamanites, how could their blessing survive a period of first of righteousness and then of serious apostasy? And the best I can come up with for an answer is this. Now, by this point in the Book of Mormon, it has been two or three generations where the people of Ammon, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, as they had been known before, had become part of the Nephites, and in fact, had ceased to be called a separate people entirely. Nevertheless, I believe their influence spread among the, the Lamanites that came in contact with them. Usually when Lamanites were captured in battle, they would be sent, and rather than be held as prisoners of war, they would be sent to live with the people of Ammon because it was known that once they had lived there for a certain amount of time, the, the prevailing culture of the people of Ammon was that you can repent of anything, no matter what a vile murderer you've been. If you will dedicate your life to Christ from this time forward, you can change. So first of all, they had this culture, and it was a culture that survived generations. And I guess that's my answer to the question is, there must have been some sort of cultural artifacts in spite of a period, an intervening period of righteousness or wickedness. Righteousness and wickedness are inter, uh, they are individual choices. They are the kinds of things that only deal with our own hearts inside of us. And cultural attitudes are both individual and shared. And the Lamanites had built up this culture where they believed that they could change. And when they did change, they stayed devoted. So it may be true, and this is all guesswork, obviously, it may be true that they had, such, they had a culture of such belief in personal ability to change, that it survived not only their righteousness, but their apostasy. And with that insight, then we can examine the question, how did the, the curse of the Nephites survive this period this of centuries of righteousness? So why, first of all, why would Samuel be called upon to tell the Nephites that they will be, in 400 years, they will be destroyed? There must have been something that these Nephites, the Nephites present at the time of Samuel's prophecy, there must have been something that they could do to escape that fate. In fact, Samuel tells them, if you will repent, then you will not have to suffer. This, this curse will surely come upon you, except you repent. So that must have meant that there was something that these Nephites could do if they would change right then. The implication seems to be that 400 years later, the Nephites would have survived as a people. Now, maybe this was, would have been possible if, for example, at the time of the death, death of Jesus Christ, perhaps all of the Nephites would not, or so many Nephites, would not have needed to be destroyed. And therefore, there would have been uh, a greater diversity, there would have been a greater number of surviving population. Perhaps it was the very thing that Alma was afraid of, and he told his son Helaman, don't record any records about, don't give any details about these ancient oaths that secret combinations used to make among the Jaredites, because that will prove the destruction of this people. And perhaps the, the records that survived uh, after the time of Samuel's prophecy, they did contain those details. And so then later on, Centuries later, those details were unearthed, and they proved they, they they helped the later Nephites reconstruct these these Gadianton secret societies that destroyed the Nephites. Those are two possible answers. But the reason I ask the question, and the reason I think the question is important, is you and I we we have no way of knowing how far-reaching our decisions may be. The effects of those decisions could be felt, even if our immediate descendants, or maybe there be very righteous people, maybe there would be centuries of righteousness, and nevertheless, our wickedness today could hurt our descendants, our progeny, centuries from now. And like the Lamanites, our choices could have a positive effect on our descendants centuries from now. So this brings up one of the great paradoxes of the gospel. First of all, that we, each of us, are responsible only for our own choices, uh, it's an article of faith for us that we will be responsible and accountable for our own sins, but not for the transgression of Adam and Eve. We don't have to pay the price for that. Nevertheless, 
uh, as God says in the Old Testament, the parents will eat green grapes or sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Meaning, even though we're only responsible for our own choices, we can still have an effect through our choices on a great many people, and that effect may be felt for generations and generations. This is so powerfully worth remembering, and I've seen this in my own family. I've seen inactivity result in, uh, the inactivity of a parent result in the utter lack of a child's exposure to the gospel. And then a parent might return, but the child has never been brought up in the gospel and therefore probably will never be a member of the church. Uh, I, I, I have a number of examples of this within my own family, within my circle of friends. And so therefore, that is a choice that will have a ripple effect for generations. And though the descendant is not, is not responsible because they did not make the choice to stay away from the gospel, nevertheless, they don't get the blessings of the gospel. In fact, I believe our choice to remain on the covenant path, it has ripples that go forward and backward. Because if, let's say that you are the child and your parent is the one who stepped away from the gospel and said, I no longer choose to go to church, I don't care to keep the commandments, and I'm not going to teach my children to do so. Because that's a sin that affects you, then in the afterlife, that is one of the penalties that is going to be brought about. They're going to feel the effects of that sin and all of the people that it, it caused to to either fall away from Christ or never come unto him in the first place. And when you repair that effect in your own life, you are lessening the amount of penalty that your ancestor has to feel. So when we make good choices, we we the ripple effect extends in both directions along our family lines. This is why God describes the whole human family as one great unbroken chain that must be presented to him, connected and perfect, uh, before the final judgment. And that is because all of our choices affect our family going forward and backward. Another curse that the Nephites have earned is that their riches are cursed. So their hearts are upon their riches. And so one of the curses that Samuel pronounces upon them is, your riches will now be slippery. And I I love this word. I I love the fact that this word is in the Book of Mormon. Your riches will be slippery. What it means is, all of the things that you've put your priorities on other than God will now you can now no longer keep them. You will work for them all day and at nighttime you'll find them missing. In 2 Nephi chapter 27 it quotes Isaiah 29. Uh, here in verse 3 it says the nations that fight against Zion and that distresser shall be as a dream of a night vision. Yea, it shall be unto them even as unto a hungry man which dreameth and behold he eateth but he awaketh, and his soul is empty. Or a thirsty man which dreameth, and behold, he drinketh, but he awaketh, and behold, he is faint, and his soul hath appetite. So that is a pretty good Old Testament parallel for this curse that Samuel is pronouncing on the Nephites, which is your, your riches are no longer real. Nothing will remain with you. And so you think you're wealthy today, but you're going to wake up from this like a dream, and you're going to continue to be poor. You will never be able to hold on to anything that you've chosen instead of God again. Then in chapter 14, Samuel gives this marvelous sign that the Nephites can look forward to, which is a day and a night and then a day with no, as if there were no night. So a bright light in heaven all night long. And this will be the sign that Jesus Christ has been born into the world. Now, uh, when, when we do the lesson where we actually talk about the sign being given, I'll talk about what I think was actually going on from a physics point of view. Uh, it's not gospel, but it's an interesting question to think about. The point in this question is, no matter what it is, no matter what the natural phenomenon is that can explain that brightness, the miracle is that five years before it happens, there's no way it could be predicted. No, no matter what sort of explanation that you hypothesize for that brightness. None of them could be predicted, let alone five years in advance. Samuel then goes one step further, and he predicts 
great earthquakes, floods, fires, and natural disasters around the time of the death of Jesus Christ. Now, if a heavenly event can't be predicted, earthquakes likewise can't be predicted, even the same day. Seismologists have long acknowledged that they are utterly without the ability to predict earthquakes. So earthquakes don't get predicted at all. There's a likelihood that can be said, you know, every 300 years, this particular magnitude of earthquake is generally going to happen in this area. That's as close as they can get to earthquake prediction. But 38 years, roughly 39 years in advance, Samuel is here predicting an earthquake such that the world has never seen. Now, if an earthquake can't be predicted, think about a flood or a fire. Uh, There's no way that those things could be predicted that far in, in advance. I want to make a quick point about Samuel's prophecy of these destructions. So uh, we're now in Helaman chapter 14, and let's just start on verse 23. Behold, there shall be great tempests. There shall be many mountains laid low, like unto a valley. There shall be many places, which are now called valleys, which shall become mountains, whose height is great. Many highways shall be broken up, and many cities shall become desolate. So he's talking about all the destructions that will come. 25, interestingly enough, it's almost as if 25 is thrown in here. The subject is changed, and then it goes back to where it was coming from. So we're talking about the destructions. And verse 25, And many graves shall be opened, and shall yield up many of their dead, and many saints shall appear unto many. Then we're back to the destruction. Verse 26, Behold, thus hath the angel spoken unto me, for he said unto me that there should be thunderings and lightnings for the space of many hours. And he said unto me that while the thunder and lightning lasted in the tempest, that these should be and that darkness should cover the face of the whole earth for the space of three days. Doesn't it seem odd that the prediction about the graves being opened is sort of a non sequitur right in the middle of that chapter? Now, it's so interesting because Joseph Smith, he dictated the translation to the Book of Mormon, sequentially, he didn't revise it later. He did make revisions for things like grammar and spelling, but he didn't go back and make major changes to the text. He was translating, even though he didn't have the golden plates in front of him visually, spiritually he did. He was translating, and he was not writing. He was not composing. And one of the evidences we have for this, this is an interesting, this is a very interesting evidence for the Book of Mormon. Uh, If you click or you uh, look down at the footnote in verse 25, many graves shall be opened, you'll see that it points you to 3 Nephi 23, verse 7 to 13. Now, this is one of the scriptures that Jesus Christ, he he comes when he is teaching the people in, in his first couple of days of sermons. He opens the scriptures to them and he's teaching them from the scriptures. And then he says, there's also scriptures I would like you all to have that you don't have. So he pulls out the scriptures and he says, Nephi, who is his chief apostle. He says, Nephi, didn't Samuel the Lamanite predict, didn't he prophesy that at the time of my resurrection, many graves would be opened? And Nephi, and didn't that happen? And Nephi says, yeah, he did say that. And then it did happen exactly like he said. And then Christ asks him, and I, this would be so hard to hear. I'm sure this, I'm sure he was mortified. He says, why did no one write it down? Why is this not in the scriptures? And he says, you're right, Lord. We, we didn't write it down. And so then he's given the commandment, add this to the scriptures. And if you read this, Helaman chapter 14, it's very clear to me that that is exactly what has been done. This one small verse, it's a very short verse, verse 25, many graves shall be opened and shall yield up many of their dead and many saints shall appear unto many. Now, what do we know about plates? The, the main thing we know about them is you can't erase. So what would ne- in what way could Nephi have inserted a record of the prophecy of Samuel in the plates except to write in very small little characters between two existing verses or between two existing sentences or passages to write as small as he could, uh, get across the main idea that Christ was commanding him to get across in the space that he had available. And so he would have had to go back to the plates, find a place where he could insert it, also find a place where it fits chronologically. But it would have been too much to ask that he could have found a place where it fit thematically because whoever wrote this record, Nephi, the son of Helaman, who wrote this record, uh, 
which was the father of the Nephi who's now being commanded to add it, he did. He just didn't know. He didn't know that he was forgetting to put that in. And so it's so interesting that this seems out of place. And then later on in the Book of Mormon, we find evidence that it should seem out of place, that that's exactly what it was. It was out of place because it was added later. But it was added anciently. It wasn't added by Joseph Smith. It was added by the son, Nephi, the son of the Nephi, who wrote it. A very fascinating, to me, and yet very subtle evidence for the, the ancient origin of the Book of Mormon. So chapter 15 is where Samuel gets into the blessing that he is now pronouncing on the Lamanites. He says, look, the Lamanites, when they convert, they are much more faithful. So I talked about this already before. So first, Samuel gave the curse to the Nephites. Then he talked about his predictions for the birth and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now it's the blessing to the Lamanites. Now, you'll also notice this is the exact reversal of the patriarchal blessing of Lehi to his children. He gave the blessing to Nephi and said, you will always receive, the your people will be righteous, you will receive the favor of the Lord. As long as you obey the commandments, you will prosper in the land. And the best that Lehi could say to the children of Laman was, you won't have these sins answered upon your own head. They'll be answered on the sins of your parents because you don't have the opportunity to hear the gospel and to be brought up in the gospel, and therefore it's not your fault. So on the one hand, Samuel almost seems to be reversing the patriarchal blessing of Lehi when he says that the the Lamanites will be prospered and the Nephites will be utterly destroyed. But as, as we read closer, we realize he's affirming that blessing. He's saying, These sins will not be answered on the heads of the Lamanites because all of their wickedness has to do with the tradition of their fathers. Whenever they do get the truth, they love it, they grasp it, they hold on to it, and they believe it forever. Now, I want to read more and more verse from uh, chapter 14 before we go on to chapter 16. We're going to back up real quick. In uh, chapter 14, Helaman 14, verses 11 and 12, "'Ye shall hear my words, for for this intent have I come upon the walls of this city.'" that you might hear and know the judgments of God which do await you because of your iniquities, and also that you might know the conditions of repentance, and also that you might know of the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Father of heaven and of earth, the creator of all things from the beginning, and that ye might know of the signs of his coming to the intent that you might believe on his name. These Nephites are so wicked that they are trying to kill a prophet. They're so wicked, they keep overthrowing and murdering their own government. And yet, God is sending them a prophet to the intent that they might believe on his name. When that sign comes, it is undeniable. There's a day and a night and a day without, as if, it were there, as if there were no night. This is the kind of sign that no one can deny. It is utter proof that God is real and that he has sent his son to earth. He has sent his Messiah. He's fulfilling his plan. And also, it is proof that Samuel was a prophet if he can predict this kind of thing five years in advance. And my point here is, this is grace. This is an example of the perfect grace of God toward the Nephites. He is willing to give them this unmistakable sign to the intent that they might believe on his name. And they do. When this sign comes up, you know, spoiler of next week's lesson, when the sign comes, they do believe. They, they can't help but believe. Of course, that belief doesn't last forever. After a time, the emotional impact that the original event had on them fades, and then their conversion also slips. So my question for all of us today is, what is your day, night, and day with as if there had been no night? What is that for you in your life? What proof, what spiritual witness, what emotional connection, in short, what testimony have you felt and then allowed to slip away? What sign from heaven have you at first embraced and then turned your back on? It's so easy to look at these Nephites and say, how could they disbelieve in a Jesus Christ who came when they, number one, they had a prophet to tell them all these things, and number two, they had these signs in heaven and in earth. How could they fall away so quickly. So my question to you is, what is your sign in heaven that you have fallen away from, that you have forgotten about, that you have allowed to pass out of memory and out of the the realm of 
the, the reach of your emotions and your spirit so that it can continue affecting you and bringing you close to God. Now, a sign like this can't come along every day, but we do have a living prophet who has promised us that if we will pray, as he puts it in his uh, conference address from April of 2018, Revelation for the Church, Revelation for Our Lives, if we will pray in the name of Jesus Christ about our concerns, our fears, our weaknesses, and the very longings of our heart, and then listen, then write the thoughts that come into our mind, record those feelings, and follow through with actions then if we repeat that process, we will grow into the principle of revelation. President Nelson said, To be sure, there may be times when you feel as though the heavens are closed, but I promise that as you continue to be obedient, expressing gratitude for every blessing the Lord gives you, and as you patiently honor the Lord's timetable, you will be given the knowledge and understanding you seek. Every blessing the Lord has for you, even miracles, will follow. That is what personal revelation will do for you. The day, night, and day as if there had been no night for us is far more subtle than it was for these Nephites at the time of Jesus Christ. And rightfully so. Jesus Christ only could be born into his mortal tabernacle one time in all of human history. But as we learned from the Savior appearing to his disciples on the road to Emmaus, the, the most important miracle that Jesus could do was to put the Spirit into their heart. When Jesus left uh, those two disciples, they didn't say to themselves, wow, that was Jesus. He was real. I saw his body. They said, did not our hearts within us burn as he walked with us by the way and as he opened to us the scriptures? When I read that passage in Luke 24, I realize that the most powerful witness of Jesus Christ is not seeing him, but is feeling the Holy Ghost bear witness to our hearts. After all, Jesus had access to both of those kinds of witness when he appeared to the disciples, and yet he chose to appear in disguise and first opened to them the scriptures and helped them to feel the Spirit. Only afterward did he reveal himself physically. When he was gone, it was clear to them which of those two types of evidence was more convincing. Now in Helaman 16, Samuel leaves. Nephi is now left to take all of the people that list, that were willing to listen to his message or the people who tried to kill Samuel and because they were unable to, were converted. Now, this tells us that was a, it was a miracle. If you shot an arrow at somebody and just happened to miss, you wouldn't likely be converted. And so it must have been so painfully clear that they simply could not hit Samuel. It must have been very dramatic. It must have been the fact that somebody who is a very good archer was very close to Samuel and still missed repeatedly. That would be the only kind of thing that would turn a murderer into a convert. Otherwise, they would have chalked this sort of thing up to uh, luck or to circumstance the way Satan would always inspire people to try to inspire people to do. And because they were actually, some of these would-be murderers were willing to convert to the gospel, it must have been quite dramatic that Samuel had escaped being even, even touched by any of these missiles that were being launched at him. So there were some few people who believed in Samuel. There were some few who were convinced by his miraculous appearance among them and his invulnerability. And yet the vast majority did not believe So for five more years, they resisted. In fact, the signs that he gave them, some of the things that weren't recorded, it's it's mentioned here in the the account in these chapters, it's mentioned that we couldn't have all of his words given to us. So some of the signs that he had mentioned are beginning to be fulfilled, and it gets more and more dramatic. It gets more and more undeniable. And yet, what is the reaction? They say some of the things he must have guessed right among so many. But behold, and now we're in verse 16, we know that all these great marvelous works cannot come to pass of which have been spoken. And then they began to reason and contend among themselves, saying that it is not reasonable that such a being as Christ shall come. If so, and he be the Son of God, the Father of heaven and of earth, as it has been spoken, why will he not show himself unto us as well as unto them who shall be at Jerusalem? Behold, we know this is a wicked tradition which is handed down unto us by our fathers to cause us that we should believe in some great and marvelous thing which should come to pass, but not among us. In a land which is far distant, a land we know not of, therefore 
They can keep us in ignorance, for we cannot witness with our own eyes that they are true. And the point that Nephi is trying to make here, this is Nephi the son of Helaman writing this record. The point that Nephi is trying to make here is the point that we've made many times on this podcast, which is there will always be a choice to believe. And a choice to believe necessitates a choice not to believe. You may be in a position in your life where you felt the Spirit often enough and you've tried the word of the Lord and the promises of the Lord enough that you no longer could possibly doubt that he's there, that he loves you, that he's walking beside you, that he's blessing you, that his words are true, that the scriptures are an accurate account of his prophets. But before you can get to that point, you may be in a position where you have to choose to believe. You don't yet have the kind of experience that would tell you, I know that God lives, I know that he speaks through his prophets, and every person who ha- who today has a testimony yesterday or at some point in the past, they were in the position you're in, which is they had to choose, what kind of world do I want to live in? Do I choose to live in a world where there is no God? The world of Korahor and Sherem and Nehor, these men who said that there's really no point, we might as well all do everything that we can to get the maximum benefit out of this life, even if it comes at the expense of other people. Or do you choose to live in a world where God gives purpose to your struggle and meaning to your suffering? where you face the prospect of having him trade peace for your pain, and you receive the promise of being caught up with him to dwell with him forever? Do you believe it's your right or even your duty to indulge every desire that rises to the level of your consciousness? Or do you feel that there is a difference between some desires and others, that some have a quality that makes them holy, set apart, and heavenly, and others have a quality that makes them low and common and earthbound. If you felt this difference in your desires, then you have felt the Holy Ghost telling you that God is calling to you to choose to believe in Him and elect to receive the blessings of peace and safety rather than the cursings of having all of your substance evaporate like steam and have your soul surprised by its accountability when the day finally comes when it's everlastingly too late. The choice between good and evil really is that stark and that important. It begins with the choice to believe. What story do you want to tell yourself about the universe, about why you're here? Do you want to believe in a Savior who loves you and in a God who sends prophets to tell you the truth? Brothers and sisters, the Savior does love you. He loves all of us. He serves us. He suffers with us. And in his due time, all of our curses will become blessings, and our blessings will become glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Holt. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.